everybody hope you're all doing okay. So, uh, I just want to say a word or two, just a few, few moments before we get back to our topic. You know, tomorrow is, uh, again, it's a holiday in the Israeli calendar of uh, the 28th of Eeyore, which is Yom Yerushalayim. Uh, but you know, the 28th of Eeyore is also a uh, very famous yard well, it's not, not a famous, it's a yard site of a very famous person, although it's not a famous yard site. If you happen to know who's yard site, the 28th of year. Uh, it's Shmuel Hanavi. Uh, Shmuel Hanavi cool. is the 28th of year, and I don't know if you've ever been there. I, I actually, I, 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 huh? Yeah, his cover is. Heard that it's Not too far. It's uh, it's on uh, it's on Shmuel Hanavi. Keep on going, which becomes Golden Meir. So it's funny. Shmuel Hanavi's cover <laughs> is on the part of the street that's not called Shmuel Hanavi, but it's the same. It's the same. Uh, it's the same street. And in addition, uh, in the Israeli calendar, it's uh, Yom Yerushalayim, which is the day, uh, this is before you were born, but I, I remember it, I was very little, uh, the day that uh, we regained uh, the old city, and uh, even more importantly, the Harabayas and the Kaisal, the Temple Mount, the whole Temple Mount, and that uh, it was a really, really big simcha. You know, in 1948, uh, Jews were living in the old city, and then the Arabs in the War of Independence, uh, the Arabs uh, took over the old city, and people were forced to leave the old city, and it was ruled by Jordan for 19 years. And then there were some old people who had, who had lived in the city and back in 1947, and they were able to go back, and uh, Yom Yerushalayim is a very, very big, uh, it's a very, very big simcha. But I just want to make two points. You know, if you think about L'chad Dodi that we say Friday night, right? Say L'chad Dodi. And L'chad Dodi was written by Rav Shlomo Alkabitz, who was one of the Talmidim of the Ari, one of the great Mekubalim of Svat. And uh, they would go out and Svat, uh, the Arizal and his Talmidim would go out and they would welcome Shabbos in the fields, right? Uh, where Meron is, Svat, Meron, the same, same, same place. Uh, Meron is right across the valley uh, from Svat. And L'chad Dodi is sung by everybody, Ashkenazim, Svardim, Hasidim, Misnagdim, Taimanim, L'chad Dodi. It's very rare that you have a poem that was written after Chazal's time that becomes part of everybody's sitter. Very, very rare. But L'chad Dodi, I think, is mamash, a universal part of the Friday night davening. Uh, but the strange thing about L'chad Dodi is, if you, you just look at, look at the words and look at the translation, most of the song is not about Shabbos. The first verse talks about Shomor v'zachor, to observe Shabbos, to remember Shabbos. And then in the next verse is Likras Shabbos let us go and greet Shabbos. And then the Machaber switches topics totally. He talks about Yerushalayim being in the dust, and uh, he should rise up, and Hashem should bring light, and Hashem should bring Mashiach, and Hashem should bring the building of the Beis HaMikdash. And then only at the very last verse, Boi b'shalom ateres bala, Shabbos, which is the ateres bala, the crown of her husband, Hashem, should come in peace. So most of l'chadaydi is not about Shabbos. Most of l'chadaydi is about Moshiach, about the tzar, well, both negative and positive. It, it paints the tsar of Golos and the suffering of the Jewish people. And then it paints the glorious geula that will come and then only at the very end he goes back to Shabbos. So like, what's going on? Why is a song about Shabbos not about Shabbos? Why is it so much about, about Ka'ula? And the short answer is that 
Shabbos, we experience me'ain olam haba. We experience uh, a feeling of olam haba. We experience what Geula is like. That is why Geula itself is called, Yemosa Mashiach is called Yom Shekulo Shabbos, the day of the eternal Shabbos. Now there used to be, I'm not sure if they still have it, there used to be a potato chip commercial for a company that said, bet you can't eat just one. Meaning the idea is you only eat one, you know, you'll keep on going. So Geula, Kalvachimer is the same way. If on Shabbos we feel a little bit of the taste of Geula, our neshama is starving for the whole thing. So as the poet is writing L'chadaydi with really Ruach HaKodesh, and as he's thinking about the holiness of Shabbos, which is a taste, me'ain means a taste of, it's a taste of Eilam It's like a potato chip, Lahavdim. His neshama so much yearns for the whole thing. And then he says, please, Hashem, you gave us a little taste, but bring the Mashiach, bring the Beis HaMikdash, bring your Shekhinah into the world. It's as if to say, Shabbos becomes the springboard for his whole yearning for Geula. But then, he has to wake himself out of a dream. Because yes, that's what we hope and that's what we pray for. But right now, we don't have it yet. And we have to be grateful for what we do have which is the me'ain olam haba of Shabbos. And therefore, in the last verse, he pulls himself back to earth. Meaning, Shabbos kind of lifted him up to the heavens, but then he realizes he has to be on earth. So we thank Hashem for Shabbos. So it, it occurred to me that really a day like Yom Yerushalayim is mamash the same thing. On one hand, we start off being so grateful that we have a Yerushalayim, we have a Kaisal, we're able to be Mispalo. But at the same time, we realize how incomplete it is. We say on one hand, oh, Baruch Hashem, we have the Kaisal. But what is the Kaisal? The Kaisal is the last surviving wall, not even of the Beis HaMikdash. The Kaisal is not a wall of the Beis HaMikdash. It's a wall that surrounded the Temple Mount. And the Temple Mount itself, what is it? There's mosques. And the, the Goyim uh, occupy it, as the Pasuk and Eicha says, on Hartzion Shashamim, on the desolate Mount Zion, Shualim Hilchubo, foxes and rodents are running all over it. And uh, many, most Jews don't even go on the Harabais, some for halachic reasons and some simply because it's dangerous. And we still live in a world of war and a world of tragedies, like last week, just only been a little more than a week since the 45 Kedoshim died at Meiron. So at the same time when we are grateful for what Hashem gave us, that causes a tremendous yearning as to what we don't have. What we don't have. You know, I remember when the Six-Day War, which really was a miraculous war, like an amazing, amazing victory, and the territories that, that we acquired, and the old city, and Yerushalayim, and, and, and the Harabayas, and it was just really a miraculous type of war. Many, many people thought that this would bring Mashiach right away. Many, many people thought at the time that this would happen. So people were talking, mainly in the very modern Orthodox, not so much uh, Haredi or Hasidim, but they were saying, you know, maybe you shouldn't have Tisha B'av anymore. You know, we have the Kaisal, we have the Harabayat, so what do you need Tisha B'av? And even if you're gonna have Tisha B'av, but how can you say the prayer, right? The prayer of Tisha B'av in the Amida, Nachem, it's in the Shmon Nazareth. So Nachem talks about the city is burnt and destroyed and desolate and abandoned. So people said, 
That's not Yerushalayim today. Everything's being built up, and Jews are living certainly in most of the most of the city. Okay, there's still East Jerusalem, even in East Jerusalem, uh, Jews are moving in. So some people were saying, okay, okay, we're going to fast on Tisha B'Av because we don't have the base of Mikdash yet. But how can you talk about Yerushalayim as a destroyed and as a desolate city? So again, as they say, I mean, uh, this was mainly from a very kind of left-wing modern orthodox, but people were bringing up the question. And particularly in Eretz Yisrael, this was debated. People were discussing this back in 1967. And Rav of Yeshiva University, who was kind of the gadol of modern orthodox, he's a big, big Talmud Chacham, but particularly in modern orthodox, he was the, the gadol hadorah for them. By the way, he uh, went to college with the Rebbe. They were college mates in the uh, University of, of uh, Berlin. Uh, in fact, uh, Rav Salvechik said he once got the Rebbe out of jail. What was the story? Uh, he said, he said, Rav Salvechik used to tell the story that um, on Purim, I mean, the, I mean, the Rebbe wasn't Rebbe then. The Rebbe was Ramash. The Rebbe was just, uh, so the Rebbe was, uh, got a little high on Purim and he was giving a drasha. He was giving Torah. But in a German university, all speeches, you have to have advanced permission, you have to have the right papers, you have to have authorization, you have to have permission. Everything is against the, the rules there, you know. Um, so the Rebbe was arrested because he was giving a speech without getting permission. So Rav Soloveitchik uh, paid the bail, got him, out of, got him out of jail. And then he told the Rebbe, told the Rebbe, he says, now I know you'll be a Rebbe because I know in Chabad, Every rebbe has to have some time in has to have some time in prison. <laughs> it's not really true. Not every rebbe, but uh, but indeed it was the case. Many rebbeim, many of the rebbeim were in prison. So now you're you're yaitze, You've been in prison one day. Now you can become uh, the rebbe. But anyway, Rav Soloveitchik said, going back to this question, uh, why uh, why do we still talk about Yerushalayim being destroyed and desolate when Baruch Hashem it's so built up? is because destroyed and desolate is not just physical. It also refers to spiritual. Yes, we have nice buildings. Yes, we have Jews living uh, most parts of the city, and that's wonderful. It is wonderful. But still, how far we are from HaKadosh Baruch uh, There's so much uh, desecration of Shabbos, but there's so much sinaschinam, a lack of avas Yisrael, machlokas, division, divisiveness, suffering. We don't have peace in the world. I mean, the Arabs still want to blow up, uh, blow up things. I mean, there, terrorism still going on. So when we talk about a city being destroyed and desolate, it's not just referring to whether a building is up or a building is down. It refers to a whole relationship that we have with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So that's what I'm comparing. I'm comparing Yom Yushalayim to L'chadodi, that on one hand, uh, the poet, the poet cherishes Shabbos, but then yearns for the whole Geula, so too. On one hand, we're makir tov, we're grateful for everything HaKadosh Baruch Hu has given us and everything that soldiers have given us, uh, no, whatever. You have to be grateful to everybody. But at the same time, there has to be a feeling that we're still missing something. Uh, we, we have not come home yet. We are not, even in Eretz Yisrael, we are, we are not living in the perfect world that HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants to create for us if we're zaycha to the Gula. So that's why in these happy days, and they are happy days, they are days of Akharat Hatov, there is still going to be a certain sadness uh, that we have. You know, the Pasuk that we say at a Chasna, it's a Pasuk in Tehillim. Im like your highest, your happiest day of your life. 
Right? If I forget Yerushalayim, David HaMelech says, may I forget my right hand, may I not even be able to use my right hand. May my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I don't remember you. If I don't make Yerushalayim above all of my joys. May all of this happen. We still say it today. We still. You could be married in the middle of Yerushalayim. You could be married here. <laughs> you still have to talk about break a glass and recognize that we have to be misabel over Yerushalayim. So that's an important idea that a Jew is living simultaneously with a great akara satoy for what Hashem has given, but also a great yearning for the complete geula uh, that we haven't yet experienced. Yeah. Do we keep that gloss? Uh, well, most people do not, but I, I could see a good reason to keep it. In other words, it's not brought down that you have to keep it. But I could see that it would be actually a beautiful thing to, to keep. I, I happen not to have mine, but, uh, <laughs> but it's something to think about, uh, kind of a memory. Now, here I want to share with you one more thought about it. I don't want to spend the whole, whole class on this. And that is, the name Yerushalayim is very, very interesting. I don't know if anybody here is from Minnesota. You know, Minnesota. We have the twin cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul, which are really two cities that are one. Yerushalayim is really a, a combination of two different cities. There is a city called Shalem, which corresponds to the English Salem. That's where they burnt the witches in Massachusetts. But, so Shalem. And then there's another city called Yireh. So Yerushalayim is a combination of Yireh, Shalem. Now, where do you see these two cities? So the city of Shalem is actually mentioned in the Torah. Yerushalayim as a city is not. It never, the, the Torah itself never has the words Yerushalayim. That is only in Nevi'im and Kesuvim. But the Torah does refer to sh the city of Shalem. And this, you'll remember, was after Abraham waged war. When Abraham rescued Lot from the four powerful kings that uh, uh, captured Lot, and Avram was defending the five kings against the four kings that were more powerful. And Avram was victorious. And Avram liberated the prisoners of war. And he liberated Lot as well. So if you remember, it mentions Malchit Tzedek, the king of Shalem, came out with bread and wine. And he gave it to Avram. And he blessed Avram. And Malchit Tzedek, the king of Shalem, is Kohen. Lekel Elyon, he was a Kohen to the highest God. Now, who is Malchitzedek, the king of Shalem? So Rashi says he is none other than Avram's own great 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 grandfather, Shem, the son of Noah. I mean, Avram is actually descended from him. And the reason he was called Malchitzedek is because that was not his birth name, but all kings of Shalem, of Jerusalem, just like all kings of Egypt are Paro. All kings of Jerusalem were given an honorary title, King of Justice or King of Righteousness. Malchit Sadek. Because there was a sense, even among the Goyim, that this was a holy place, a place of justice and a place of righteousness. So Malchit Sadek is Shem, the son of Noah, who was the king of the city of Shalem, Yerushalayim. But it was called Shalem. So where do you get the other name of the city? You get the other name of the city from Avraham and the Akedah, the Temple Mount. 
when Avram was going to sacrifice Yitzchak as a korban, and Avram was willing to kill his son, if that was Hashem's will, and Yitzchak Avinu was willing to give up his life, if that was Hashem's will. But Hashem called off, Hashem said, I didn't want you to do that, I wanted to see how, I wanted to test your devotion, but I didn't want, I don't want you to actually do this, of course. So what does the Pasuk say? Avram called the Temple Mount Hashem Yireh. Yireh is the name he gave the Temple Mount. What does Hashem Yireh mean? God will see. God will look down at this mountain and he will remember the Mesiras Nefesh of Avram who was willing to slaughter his son and the devotion of Yitzchak who was willing to die. And when God remembers this Akedah and he even has an image of Yitzchak Avinu lying as a korban, he will have mercy and compassion and love for Am Yisrael. Hashem Yireh, God will look down and see. So, the Medrash says that Yerushalayim is two cities in one. The city is called Shalem, and the Temple Mount is called Yireh, because Avram gave the name Yireh to the Temple Mount. So, let's see how you get the combination. We're not quite there yet. So, Yerushalayim is Yireh Shalem. Yireh Shalem. So first, how do you get the Yeru? Why, why, isn't it, why is it Yeru Shalayim? It should be Yireh Shalem. So the Metrish says that Aleph and Hey, how do you spell Yireh? God will see. Yud Resh, Aleph Hey. Aleph and Hey, the Gematria, is six. That's above. So the Aleph and the Hey got combined. So instead of Yireh, you have Yeru. Okay. But you're still not quite there yet. So even after that contraction, the city should be called Yerushalayim, which actually actually would be very like, like the English. Jerusalem. Yerushalayim. Why do we pronounce that, that second yud? Why do I say Yerushalayim? Right? So it's an interesting thing that throughout Tanakh, Yerushalayim is always written without the second yud. So although we read it, Yerushalayim, the letters are actually Yerushalem, not Yerushalayim. So what is the significance of the extra yud? The answer is it's a plural. Just like yadayim means two hands, raglayim means two feet, osnayim means two ears, Yerushalayim means two Jerusalems meaning the city is actually Yerushalem, and two Yerushalems is Yerushalayim. What are the two Jerusalems? So right away, it's not the old city and the new city, and it's certainly not East Jerusalem and West Jerusalem. We consider that all one city. But it's the Yerushalayim of Shamayim, Yerushalayim in Shamayim, and the Yerushalayim on earth. Because Chazal teach us there is a heavenly Yerushalayim that's supposed to be directly opposite the Yerushalayim on earth. And when the two Jerusalems are in alignment, that is when the Geula comes. That's when the Beis Hamikdash. Well, when, 
Well, when, when it happens, it's when it happens. <laughs> when the Gula comes. When so the how do you that happen? So we do it by Torah, by mitzvahs, by Avas Yisrael, by Chesed, by all the different ways. I mean, the way we talked about this uh, all the time, uh, the idea of, uh, you know, we don't bring Mashiach by a gimmick. We don't bring Mashiach by a, by a trick. We bring Mashiach by the goodness that we try to create in the world. And of course, it, actually, there are two factors that bring Mashiach. It's interesting. Uh, one factor we don't have control over, that is, when things are so, so, so bad for the Jewish people, Baruch basically has to say, I don't have a choice. I got to come in. Just like Mitzrayim. We are in the 49th level of Tumah. Hashem had to come in. So there is a concept that Geula comes when things are so bad that Hashem has to come in. But the better way to bring Geula is not so much by having things to be so bad, but to try to create the goodness that is the foundation of Mashiach. So that brings the two cities in alignment. When they're a little off base, meaning we're here and the heavenly Jerusalem is here, the base of Mikdash cannot descend. And then we're stuck. So Yerushalayim means the two Yerushalayims, and it's a remez to the Yerushalayim in Maila, Shalmaila, uh, in heaven, and the Yerushalayim shall uh, Shalmata. And therefore, part of our tefillah is that the Yerushalayim should be in alignment. And then the third base of Mikdash, we won't even have to build, according to Rashi, at least. Rashi says the third base of Mikdash will come down from the Shemayim. Just as an aside, uh, the Rambam seems to argue with Rashi. The Rambam seems to say in Hilchos Molochim that Moshiach will build the base of Mikdash. So there seems to be a machlokas. Actually, there are three opinions. It's interesting. I don't want to get into all of these. I just, I'll just mention them so you'll be aware of them. Rashi's shita is that the third base of Mikdash is not going to be rebuilt by human beings at all. It will come down min ha-shomayim. That is Rashi's opinion. The Rambam's opinion is that the Binyan Beis HaMikdash is one of the jobs of the Mashiach, that when the Mashiach reveals himself and gathers the uh, exiles of Israel, he will build, I, I don't mean he'll physically build, but he will be the one that will supervise the building of the Beis HaMikdash. That is the Shita of the Rambam. Then there's a third opinion that's very interesting, based on the Talmud Yerushalmi, which is not the Halacha, the Talmud Yerushalmi says, we're supposed to build the Beis HaMikdash before Mashiach comes, and that brings Mashiach. You may be aware that there is a group uh, in Israel, there's a little, little bit of a radical group, that they actually say, we have to build the Beis HaMikdash right now. And they're, they're basing their argument on the Talmud Yerushalmi that says, building the Mikdash is something that brings the Mashiach. Now, we don't paskin that way, because we either follow Rashi's opinion, we don't know, that the third Mikdash will come from the Shemayim, or we follow the Rambam that only after Mashiach can we build the base on Mikdash, we cannot build the Mikdash before Mashiach comes. That's how we paskin. But there are those who want to follow the Talmud Yerushalmi, so they actually believe you build the base on Mikdash first, and that brings the Mashiach. So what will happen when Mashiach comes? Like, will they, because they've already built most of the things, right? Well, no, they, they haven't built anything yet. Uh, oh, is that so they, they, they say they want, they want to build it, but they haven't, they haven't done it. The, like, there's this, like, this group that's built, like, built, like, different things that should go on. 
No, no, what they've done is, all they've done is, I mean, I mean they would want to build an actual base of Mikdash, but all they've done is they've made models of a lot of the utensils. Could we use those? Uh, probably not, because they didn't really make, for example, they didn't make uh, a Mizbech out of gold. I mean, they, they, made, you know, they made the gold Mizbech to look like gold, so, so they didn't use the actual materials. So uh, they just wanted people to see. Their, their, their idea was that if we see what these things look like, uh, that kind of makes you more eager to, to want it. I mean, if you don't know what it looks like, you don't have such a, a feeling for it. But I, I don't think anything they've made we would actually be able to use at this point. Yeah? How do you know what to believe? Like, which teaching? You know, you know listen, it's a, very, it's a very excellent question. I mean, I, I gave you three opinions about the Binyan Beis Amikdash. Yeah, so uh, how do you know what to do? Well, here's the thing. I, I think it's fairly clear that we can reject um, Opinion number three, because it's not brought in the halacha swarm. It's in the. I like Rashi's. Yeah, so between Rashi and the Rambam, you know, how, how, how can we decide? I think the Rebbe said usually. The Rebbe said many many times, although not about this particular issue, that in all matters pertaining to the Mashiach laws of Mashiach, he felt that the Rambam was the final authority on the halacha. I think the Rebbe said that uh, many many times. Uh, so I imagine, therefore, we would follow the Rambam's opinion that we don't uh, start building the base of Mashiach. Uh, but again, if Hashem decides to follow Rashi, that'll be Hashem's decision, not my decision. <laughs> if you see the base of Mikdash coming down from heaven, uh, then you'll know that HaKadosh Baruch Hu decided to follow Rashi. So we'll have to see what, what HaKadosh Baruch wants to do. About the base of Mikdash coming down? Wow, wow. That's beautiful. That's correct, that's correct. We, so, some want to reconcile both opinions that uh, a lot of it will come down or whatever. Uh, we will put in the doors or something. There has to be yeah. something that we, because there's still something that we have to contribute. And in that way, both Rashi and the Rambam might both be, might both be correct. Now, I remember seeing a few years ago, again, it was probably nothing, but it, it struck me, uh, it looked like a UFO. It looked like a, uh, a flying saucer that was going down over the Temple Mount, Arabias, very, very fast, like it was going to land. Oh my gosh. And then, like 500 feet above, it just went all the way up again real fast. No way. So I was thinking to myself, you know? You saw that? I saw that, yeah. Andrew, it, was, it was a UFO. I mean, it must have been, probably it was a satellite. I don't know what it was. But it really struck me. You know, maybe that was the base of Mikdash coming down. And then, it was like, and then Hashem said, nah, not ready yet. <laughs> They're not ready. <laughs> like, you know, Hashem no, like, Rabbi. That's what I felt. It was like, it looked, like it, it, looked like it was going to land. And what was it? Then it just, I know I never found out. Uh, can you find out, please? Well, I'll, I'll see if I can like It was like 15 years ago, but I'll, I'll try to reconstruct it if I could find some. Oh, my gosh. Some evidence. Was it a dream? Of, no. It was, I, I, I saw it. Was, my dream was real. Maybe that really happened. Well, something something happened, but again, it could it could have been a satellite. It could have been it could have been anything. You know, could have been anything. But it just the picture in my mind was hmm, Hashem oh is God, Hashem is deciding, and then oh, oh, too bad, not ready. That's a big okay. deal. Well, you know, if you look at Shira Shirim, Shira Shirim is written as a romantic uh, story, yeah. but as you know, Shira Shirim is a mashal for the love of Hashem and the Jewish people. Uh, you know, the Jewish people are like the uh, bride and Hashem is like the chassan. And it talks about their tremendous love. 
So there actually is uh, a scene. I mean, in Shirashim, it talks about my beloved is knocking at the door. I mean, you can read it romantically, but it's very, very powerful, in which the woman is playing hard to get. Uh, she goes to bed. He's knocking at the door, and she says, I'm going to sleep already. I'm sorry. Can't see you. And she's waiting for him to keep on asking. It's a dream. But when she's ready, she gets up, and she opens the door, and he's gone. And she's looking for him. And she asks all of the people in the street, have you seen him? And they beat her, and they mock her, and they make fun of her. Do you see, do you see what that story is? Do you see what that story is? That HaKadosh Baruch Hu is knocking. He wants to bring the Geula. But we're not ready. We're comfortable in, our, uh, in America, whatever it is. And then at some point we say, okay, Hashem, now I'm ready for Mashiach. I want to be ready. But Hashem says, well, you know, listen, <laughs> when I was ready, you weren't ready. And when you're ready, maybe it's not the right time. You have to go through different things. Right, so when you read Shirashim with that understanding, it's such a powerful, powerful, powerful message of the idea that Hashem is knocking, the words, kol dodi dofek. The voice of my beloved. And, and you're right, actually, Shir Shir might be describing a dream, as a matter of fact. It might be describing a dream uh, that the woman is having, but it is the dream that Am Yisrael is having, right, through the, through the medium of, that, uh, of that, uh, that woman. That's why, you know, just to mention as an aside, uh, there were Chachamim who didn't want to have Shir Shir in the Tanakh. They said, uh, what are you putting romantic stories uh, in the Jewish Bible? Uh, but Rabbi Akiva said, no, Rabbi Akiva said, if all of the songs in the, Torah, in the, in the Tanakh are holy, Shira Shirim is Kodesh Kedoshim. It is the holiest of holy because it is the intimacy of the relationship of HaKadosh Baruch Hu and Am Yisrael. And every single romantic scene has to be understood in terms of that relationship. Right? So that's the... Uh, that's the idea in which, uh, you know, we, we're just, Hashem wants to reveal himself, but we sometimes don't make ourselves ready. And we have to become a kli to be makabal, right? Just like uh, ore has to be received in a vessel, we have to make ourselves a kli to be able to be makabal, makabal that, uh, that ore. All right, so be it as it may, uh, so what you hopefully have now is, you have the etymology, you have the, 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 uh, the language source of the name Yerushalayim, it is a combination of two cities. Yere is the Temple Mount, and Shalem is the rest of the city. And if you combine the two, you get Yere Shalem, which is contracted to Yerushalem, and then Yerushalayim are the two Yerushalayims, Yerushalayim Shalmala and the Yerushalayim Shalmata, that when they are in alignment, they will bring the Geula. So there's one more point I, I, I want to share with you, and that is, what does Yira, so Shalem means, we know it means peace, it means perfection, we know what Shalem means. Um, but Yira, what does Yira mean? So in the Chumash, Yira was used to mean Hashem will look, Hashem will see. But Yira has the same letters as reverence of Hashem, Yira Hashem. So the Medrash actually says, that Avraham's name, the fact that Avraham calls Mount Moriah, the Temple Mount, Yira, can also mean it is the place of reverence and Yira Hashem. So here is what I want to share with you, and this kind of reflects the 
dual aspect of Yerushalayim, which makes a little bit of a schizophrenic city. I'm sure you've, you've learned that although all of Eretz Yisrael is holy, there are four traditionally holy cities in Eretz Yisrael, like four of the holiest cities. Yerushalayim, of course, is number one, and then you have Hebron, and then you have Tiberia, and then you have Tzfat. These are considered to be the holy cities. In that I'll, order? Uh, no, I'm not in that order. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you in a moment what the order would be. Now, the Swarim say that the four holy cities are mechuvan, they're connected to the four elements. Yerushalayim is the city of fire. Hebron is the city of afor, dirt. Tiberia, which is on Yam Kinneret, is the city of water. And Svat, which is mystical, ethereal, heavenly, is like the city of air, ruach, wind. Right? Yerushalayim, however, is the city of fire. Now, fire has good aspects and negative aspects. Fire is passionate, excitable, invested. You have a burning, right? When we talk about the person as a, I mean, Dr. Rebbe talks about this all the time. I mean, the marshal that he, in fact, well, actually, it's based on Shira Shira. Shira Shira describes Abba Sashem as a shalhevet, as a torch that is yearning to go up and be connected. And the Alter Rebbe, over and over again in Tanya, describes Abba Sashem as a fire in your heart that wants to go up and be connected to HaKadosh Baruch But fire, in the negative way, can be machlokas, can be destructive. And I remember, I once had to take, uh, I had to actually take a cab from Tzfat back to Yerushalayim. For, or Sameach, right there. We had to be back. So uh, the cab driver was an older man who had uh, worked as a cab driver in Tzfat for 50 years. 50 years driving a cab in Tzfat. So we come to Yerushalayim, it was like 11 o'clock uh, in the morning. And immediately, he's hit with uh, horns, horns, car horns blasting. Like, you know, 50 horns. Everyone's like pushing on their horn with the traffic. And he said, he's driven a cab in spot for 50 years. He has never once heard anyone blow their horn. <laughs> in Yushalayim, you know, you know, if the light turns green and uh, the guy in front of you uh, hasn't started traveling within one millionth of a second from the time the light turned green. You know, horns are blasting all over the place. Sometimes it's even, uh, you know, you can get vertigo trying to cross the street because the, tr the horns are blasting from different directions and the cars are moving different directions. And, you know, you're not sure if you're going to get hit by somebody coming from somewhere. So Yerushalayim is the city of fire. Fire in Avodah Hashem, in Ruchmias, in spirituality, fire in politics. Fire in driving, fire in rudeness. Mm -hmm. Fire is good and fire is bad. But at least Mitzad Kedusha, the fire is that which is Yira Sashem. Yira, Yira is the, the fire of commitment to truth, to Torah, to mitzvahs. But then we have Shalom. Shalom is the other part of the city. Now, Shalom is Abbas Yisrael, tolerance acceptance of people, understanding people where they're at. Now the problem is that these two parts of the city may contradict. Because when a person tends to have yira, and they're filled with reverence for Hashem, and they're filled with passion, and they're filled with 
commitment. They tend to be very unaccepting of people who are not on that madriga. How can you compromise on truth? If you believe something is absolutely true and someone is living a life of sheker, how can you accept that? How can you compromise? How can you give in? So what you find in the world very often is that the people that are fiery and passionate tend not to be able to be people of shalom. And then the other way around, people of shalom, I'm okay, you're okay, everybody's okay. They don't stand for anything. Right? So you can be an ish shalom and not an ish ms or isha, I should say. Or you could be a person of truth and not a person of peace. Or a person of peace and not a person of truth. But what does Hashem say in the in Zachari? It's a Pasuk. You must love truth and you must love peace at the same time. That in your truth there is commitment and passion and you don't compromise on the MS. You stand up for what is right and the fact that everybody thinks you're crazy doesn't change things. You go with the MS of the Ratzon Hashem but you're still a person who can love other Jews, to connect to them, not to make them feel bad or inferior, to be a person of Shalom. It's not an easy thing. And Yushalayim, the very name of Yushalayim embodies this contradiction. The city of Yiras Hashem, Yira, and the city of Shalom at the same time. You know, there is a medrash in Tanit Yahu. And uh, this is a very, very strange medrash, but it's from Eliyahu Hanavi, where Hashem tells Eliyahu Hanavi, there are two things that I love with a complete, absolute love. One is the Torah, which is my will and my essence, and the other is the Jewish people. And I love both of them with a 100% complete love. Eliyahu Navi asked Hashem, which do you want more? That's kind of an unfair question. You know, it's like asking a parent, which child do you want more? You know, you're not supposed to. So Eliyahu, Hashem didn't want to answer. Eliyahu Navi was pushing HaKadosh Baruch And you know what HaKadosh Baruch said? HaKadosh Baruch said, I love both of them 100%, but I love Am Yisrael even more. Eliyahu Navi said, HaKadosh Baruch told him, Am Yisrael, even, even more than that. So these are something to think about in Yerushalayim, combining these two opposite ideas of Yira and Sholem, which are uh, you know, often in contradiction in the world that we live in. We often find the people with Yira are not people of Shalom, and the people of Shalom are not people of Yira. One has to be, has to be both. Again, I know you're in a Chabad seminary. I mean, listen, uh, the, I mean, the Rebbe was the, really the best, best uh, example of that that one could imagine. A person who stood up for MS, even when uh, other people did not, did not agree, did not accept, but if he felt that this was Hashem's Ratzon, this was Hashem's will, this is what the Torah said, then this is what he said, this is what he taught. But at the same time, in a way that was really unparalleled, how every Jew, no matter how ignorant, no matter how not religious, no matter how 
far, but the Rebbe didn't even like to say a Jew was far from Hashem. The, Jew, the Rebbe said every Jew is close to Hashem. They just don't know it. He was against the common phrase that everyone uses. Kirav Rechaikim. Kirav Rechaikim means to bring someone that is far from God and to bring them close to God. It's a very common phrase, Kirav. So the Rebbe said he didn't like, he didn't like that expression. Because who are you to say any Jew is far from God? No Jew is far from God. He doesn't know he's close. He doesn't know he's close. He has to be. He has to discover what it means to be to be close, right? So all. So you're never taking a person that's far and bringing him near. You're taking a person who's near who doesn't know that he's near, and showing him that in fact uh, he is he is near. Okay. So the name. So names. Names mean something. So the very name Yerushalayim has a lot of food for thought, a lot of things to think about in that, in that, uh, in that way. Okay? Okay. So again, I apologize for uh, the digression, but I, I think it was an important thing. Yeah, I thought it was important to think about uh, Yom Yerushalayim as, uh, as we go into it. I don't know if there's anything planned. Are you doing anything uh, for that day? Or just, uh, Yom Yerushalayim? Yeah. Yeah. The truth is, even, uh, to tell you, uh, even in Israel, even the, the, the Zionists, they underplay it a lot. Yom Atzmud is a much bigger uh, deal than Yom Yerushalayim, even though for more religious Jews, Yom Yerushalayim is even actually a more important day than even uh, Yom, Yom Atzmud. In fact, some people paskin, I mean, the minag of Hasidim and most of the Haredim is that we do not say halal on either day, but there's at least one posek who says that even if you don't say halal on Yom Atzmud, you should say halal on Yom Yerushalayim, actually, because that was a much, much greater uh, day for us that we were able to go to the Makkah of the Beis HaMikdash. By the way, I knew a fellow, um, he, he actually said that during the 19 years when the old city was under Jordanian control and Jews were not allowed to go, that he snuck in with a fake passport <laughs> and he actually davened by the Kaisa but he couldn't act as if he was diving by the car. He just went to visit or whatever it was. And he, you know, if he would have been caught, he would have been killed. And Imamish was uh, Moser, Moser Nefesh to diving by the Kotel at a time when a Jew was not even allowed to be there. And it's interesting that later he was able to afford an apartment overlooking the, the Western Wall Plaza. So to me, it's a double pleasure. I mean, I'm not a Navi, but to me, it was a double pleasure in the merit of him being Moser Nefesh to daven by the Kaisal, HaKadosh Baruch gave him a, a dira that overlooks the Kaisal. You can see it 24 wow. hours a day from a gigantic, uh, gigantic so picture, uh, picture window. Okay, alrighty. So that's uh, my little digression. Let's, let's go back to our, our main topic. Uh, if you remember, it's <laughs> kind of a sudden, sudden transition. If you remember, we were discussing uh, last week the beginning of what is called stem cell uh, research. And stem cells are when you have a fertilized embryo, you have a sperm that fertilizes an egg, and it begins to split and divide. So for the first 10 days or so, these cells are not yet, they don't have a specialized function. They're not yet kidney cells, they're not brain cells, they're not spinal cord cells, they're just cells. And then eventually, after around two weeks, they begin to specialize and become whatever they're supposed to become, kidney, brain, liver, skin, whatever it is. So it was found that if you harvest from the embryo those early cells that have not become specialized, 
you can culture them, you can cause more of them to grow as stem cells, you can make millions of them, and then you can take any of those stem cells and turn them into any tissue that you need. Skin, liver, heart, kidney. Uh, in other stem cells can become anything. And you take brain? Yes, yes, you can take stem. Yes, yeah, brain, eye, kidney. That's now, how you have cells in your brain. Yeah. Now, the thing is that we haven't yet been able to use stem cells to make a whole heart, make a whole liver, but we can use it for tissue, spinal cord tissue, heart valve tissue, and the like. So the stem cell is a wonderful, wonderful thing that can help people in all sorts of illnesses, people with heart valve problems, people with uh, Parkinson's disease that have, that have uh, diseased spinal cord tissue and the like, eventually even whole organs like hearts, livers, uh, and the like. So, but the problem is that in order to get the stem cells, you have to destroy a fertilized embryo, an in vitro fertilized embryo, within 10 to 14 days after fertilization. That's called harvesting, that's the term that's used. The harvesting of embryonic stem cells necessitates, by definition, the destruction of the embryo. You cannot just take out a stem cell and leave the embryo intact. Uh, the way it works is the harvesting of the stem cell destroys the embryo. So the halachic question is, is the destruction of an embryo in order to get stem cells, is that treated as an abortion? Because we did discuss last week that when you abort a fetus, it's an abeirim, right? I mean, there are heterim, but, but generally speaking, where abortion. Is, huh? Where is this embryo? In a woman? No, 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 it's not in a woman. Uh, this is an in vitro. It's a petri dish? It's a petri dish, yeah. Yeah, oh. yeah. yeah. Uh, in fact, that'll be a very important factor. So but, is uh, it considered abortion? Okay, so that's what we're going to talk about. So, right, right, so no, you've taken away my share. Okay, but that's exactly, uh, yeah, that's right. But that's exactly correct. What you said is exactly the critical point, but I'm going to go through a few other things first, but we will, we will get to that uh, at the end. Now, the Catholic Church, which is very, very strongly against abortion, as you know, say, does say that the harvesting of embryonic stem cells is abortion and it is not allowed. So if you're a good Catholic, you will not allow the harvesting of embryonic stem cells. So they're anti-stem cell? They're, they are absolutely anti-stem cell research, at least, at least officially. Now, many, not, again, many Catholics don't obey uh, Catholic law. And Catholic same thing with Jews. Yeah, that's correct. That's right. The same way you have uh, Reformed Jews, you have many Reformed Catholics. Uh, but if you're a Haredi Catholic, uh, you will not uh, allow the harvesting of embryonic stem cells. The question is, what does halacha say about it? On one hand, you know, you know that, and I'm not going to re repeat all of this, you know the basic halacha of abortion, and the basic halacha of abortion is it's generally forbidden unless the mother's life is in danger. Uh, so would abortion apply to the embryonic stem cell? So let me mention three halachic arguments that would permit it, and then we'll see if these are good arguments or bad arguments. That would permit stem cell, embryonic stem cells. Permits the, not abortion, permits the harvesting of embryonic stem cells. Argument number one. There is an opinion that does allow abortion, even in the woman's body, if it is within 40 days 
of conception. There is an opinion, meaning to say there is, are some opinions that say if a woman has an abortion, and this is a very, very early abortion, most of the time she will not know that she's pregnant, but if a woman has an abortion within 40 days of conception, some permit that abortion to take place. Uh, that's, for example, would permit what's called the morning after pill. Uh, what is the morning after pill? The morning after pill is not a contraception, but rather if a woman had uh, intercourse uh, without using birth control, so there is a, a pill or a medicine that she could take a day later. And what that pill does is, if there was a fertilized ovum, that no, there was fertilization, it dislodges the embryo from the wall of the uterus. So essentially it doesn't uh, continue to grow. Now technically that is abortion. That's not birth control. You, I, mean, I hope you understand this. This is a very simple distinction, but it's important that you know this. The difference between contraception and, and abortion. Contraception is a process that prevents fertilization. It prevents the sperm from penetrating the egg, either by a blockage like a diaphragm or by some hormonal uh, thing that prevents ovulation. Okay, So there, that's not abortion. Rather, you never had the fertilization. That's but, really but once there is fertilization, you have a human embryo, you have sperm that is fertilized an egg. You're not talking about birth control anymore. You are talking about abortion. Okay? So contraception and birth control are synonyms. They mean the same thing. But they are pre-fertilization techniques. Post-fertilization techniques are really forms of abortion. But some opinions do permit even post-fertilization abortion if it is within 40 days of conception and that would permit the morning after pill that takes a fertilized embryo and dislodges it from the uterine wall. Now what is the basis of that? I mean if abortion is forbidden where do you get any type of logic that before 40 days would be mutter? The answer is because the Gemara says about this. The Gemara says that any embryo that is less than 40 days old is mere water. Mayim Biyama doesn't yet have the sufficient developmental stage to be treated as human. So some posts can say, oh, if the rule is an embryo less than 40 days, is mere water, there should be no issue of abortion. Now, here's a very important point to keep in mind. Whenever somebody gives you a quote, you can't just look at a quote. You have to look at the context. You have to look at what is the quote talking about. Now, it's very important to know that the Gemara does indeed say that embryos younger than 40 days are mere water. It does say that. But that's not talking about abortion. That's talking about a different issue. That's talking about the sacrifice. 
that a woman must bring after either a live birth or a stillbirth, right? In Vayikra we read that a woman has to bring a korban after the birth of a child or after a miscarriage for that matter. And uh, she brings the korban the 81st day after the birth of a girl. 81st day after the birth of a girl and the 41st day after the birth of a boy. And the halacha is not only if it's a live child, but even if it is born dead. So on that, the Gemara says, if a woman miscarried so early in the pregnancy that it was within 40 days, because it's mere water, the woman does not have to bring a sacrifice on that type of miscarriage. So again, I, it's important to know that the Gemara is not making a statement about abortion. But some poskim want to take that language and they want to apply it to abortion by saying it's mayim bialma, it is mere water, although that is not what the Gemara is directly talking about. Now, if you follow that view, that abortion within 40 days of conception is mutter, then the harvesting of embryonic stem cells is for sure going to be permitted because even if you're destroying the embryo, you're destroying the embryo within 10 to 14 days of fertilization. That is certainly much less than 40 days. So if you go with a 40-day heter, then for sure you have a heter, right? There's not going to be any, any problem. But the problem is this. Many, many, many opinions do not recognize such a heter. They say that you're taking the Gemara's statement out of context, or the Gemara's statement is talking about the korban of a woman after childbirth. The Gemara is not talking about abortion, and the issue of abortion starts right away. So if the issue of abortion starts right away, then there's not going to be a heter of the 40 days. So the 40-day heter is very, very questionable. Some will allow it, but many, many people will not, will not allow it. So now let's talk about another heter. We know that abortion is generally forbidden, but there is one case where abortion is permitted, and that is pikuach nefesh. If the mother's life is at risk if she carries the baby, there is a mitzvah to abort the baby even in the ninth month in order to save the mother's life. Now this could be a lot of things. This could be physical illness, such as she may have a heart condition or she may have a stroke. God forbid if she gives birth to a child or carries the child. It can also be, you'll recall, psychiatric trauma. So if a woman was raped, uh, either by a, an outside rapist or an in incest, a father or a, or a brother, so halacha does not automatically permit abortion because of rape or incest. We don't have a rape or incest exception. But if, it's, if indeed this would create such a trauma, we talked about this, that the woman you know, might be suicidal, then abortion would be, permitted, would be permitted for psychiatric reasons as well. So here is the question. If we allow abortion for pikuach nefesh, could we use that for stem cell research? Could we say the following? Well, okay, let's assume the harvesting of embryonic stem cells is abortion. Let's call it an abortion. 
But abortion is permitted to save the life of the mother. Well, does it have to be the mother? What if stem cell research is going to save the life of somebody who has a defective heart and there'll be heart valve tissue there? In other words, could you simply say, yeah, stem cell retrieval is abortion. Yeah, call it abortion. But abortion is permitted for pikuach nefesh. And the uses to which the stem cells are going to be put are life-saving uses. Meaning, could you simply use pikuach nefesh as your, as your heavy? So here you have a bunch of questions. First, in order to justify doing an Aveira because you're saving a life, because that's what you're saying. Yes, it's an Aveira, but I'm doing it to save a life, right? That's what you're doing. Just like violating Shabbos, to save a life. It has to be that it's going to go directly to a person who needs it, meaning the following. I can desecrate Shabbos to save a person. Now, even if I don't know, that doesn't mean it has to be 100%, even if there's only a small chance that I'll save him. Right? If someone gets a heart attack, even if it looks like he's going to die for sure, if there's a one in a thousand chance, I drive him to the hospital or I pick up the phone and call Hatzalah. But it has to go to the benefit of a person, meaning if all you're doing is general medical research, which in the long run may wind up saving people, but what you're doing is not going to an actual person, there is no heter to violate the Torah. So here's the thing. Even if you were to argue that stem cell retrieval is permitted for pikuach nefesh, at most that would only apply if the stem cells are actually going to go to a person whose life is in danger. If what you're going to do is go keep them in a lab where you analyze them and you study them and you analyze them, even if after years it may save somebody's life, that's not called pikuach nefesh. So even if you accept the pikuach nefesh argument, this would only allow retrieval for direct therapeutic purposes, meaning it goes into a patient. It would not allow retrieval for laboratory research. That's point number one. But there's another point that's even much more basic, and this is a little complicated, but it's really, really important point. Let's go back to the basic law, right? The basic law is we're not allowed to abort a baby, but if the mother's life is in danger, we're allowed to do it. Right? That's a basic point. That is uncontested, and that is based on a Mishnah. The Mishnah says that if the fetus is endangering the life of the mother, we abort the fetus to save the mother. That's absolutely the halacha, no question. But let's ask ourselves, why should that be the halacha? Don't we have a general rule that you don't kill one person to save another person? Right? What's the famous case? Uh, somebody, a guy goes over to me, puts a gun to my head, and says, kill that person or I'll kill you. I am not allowed to kill an innocent. I can kill the guy that's threatening me, yeah. But I cannot, uh, I am not allowed to kill an innocent person in order to save my life or even to save someone else's life. In fact, they're very tragic issues. I mean, I, I, I hate to even articulate these cases. 
But let's say uh, a terrorist goes over to a man, I'm not going to put myself in the example here, and says, kill this Jew or I will kill your wife and children. Meaning you, because I have, I will kill your wife and children unless you kill this Jew. But then they're both two random people. Yeah. No, but still, you cannot, you cannot, you cannot, you cannot kill a random person to save your wife or your husband and your children. You're not allowed to kill one person to save another person. You're not allowed to kill one person to save ten people. Example, this is the famous trolley cases that maybe you studied in college. Let's assume that I'm driving a trolley, I'm driving a train. And uh, the brakes don't work. And if the train keeps on going on the track without anything, I'm going to kill 10 children. But I can turn it onto another track. But if I turn it onto the other track, there's a worker sleeping on the track because it's an abandoned track. It's going to run over the worker. Can I turn the train to save 10 kids? If that means I'm going to kill the guy sleeping on the track. The halacha is no. You cannot. In other words, if you... You're actively killing somebody. That's correct. You cannot act... If you let it go, then you're... That's correct. You're you're correct. Obviously, this is presupposing... What's the Hebrew terminology? Like, my... Shevi al I don't you think, oh, my chazis? My yeah. My chazis means who's my chazis says, who says your life or their lives are better than his life? My chazis. And you're correct, though. This paradigm is presupposing, it's a very interesting ethical, philosophical issue, that inaction is not the same as action. Meaning to say, uh, even though if I do nothing, I'm going to kill 10 people. But I'm doing nothing. So I'm not allowed to do something that will kill one person, even if it's going to save 10 people. In other words, the halacha basically is, I do nothing. If I do nothing, 10 people will die. Now, I understand uh, ethicists have argued philosophically that doing nothing is doing something. <laughs> you're, making, you're making a decision. That, 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 is, that is a good question. But, Halacha clearly understands that doing nothing is not the same as doing something, and therefore you're in a standoff situation. Do nothing, the train will follow its predetermined course. You're leaving it to Hashem, essentially. Do you understand this idea? This is called maichazis, which is an Aramaic expression. Why do you think the life you want to save is any better? Right? It's one thing. Bishlama, when I violate Shabbos to save a life, I violate Kashras to save a life. I violate Yom Kippur to save a life. So the Torah says, saving a life is more important than Shabbos, Kashras, and Yom Kippur. Yeah. But you can't kill to save a life because who says the life that you're saving is any better than the life that you're taking? You know, you could say that the Torah says life is more important than Shabbos. But life is not more important than life. Now, what if you say, well, I know my life is better. <laughs> Sometimes, I mean, let's imagine this. I mean, you can imagine scenarios where, L'chaira, I know the answer. I mean, let's imagine the terrorist has a, is holding a great sonic. And the terrorist tells you, kill that drug addict kid, or I'm going to kill the great sonic. 
So the halacha says, I'm not allowed to kill the drug addict because who says the drug addict's life is any, uh, is, is, is any less than the tzaddik? Well, come on here. <laughs> it's pretty, ob pretty obvious that tzaddik is worth more. Even so, even so. The terrorist says you don't make that judgment. Yeah. So I understand that if it's passive and active, right? If, yes. it's, uh, if it's beyond your control, yeah. and, like you don't actively do it. If it's just, yeah. But if they're both in a scenario that they're both passive, do you go according to like kindly use Yes, yes. Again, a very, very excellent question. An example would be if I only have uh, one dialysis machine right. and I have two people who need it, then, you go then, then I have to go with the bigger tzaddik, generally speaking. Right. Uh, and that's so you know. Huh? Okay. No, no. So, so Moshe Feinstein actually says, we don't make those judgments because we don't know. But, but in theory, in theory, when you're passive and you have to decide where to act, you could make some type of decision. But it doesn't actually like apply now. Like, says it does not apply today. Ramosha says we cannot do it. Ramosha basically says today we have to go with first come, first serve. Whichever, whichever patient got to the hospital first gets the dialysis machine. And we don't make judgments of, uh, I'm taking it away from you because you're bigger psychic. And <laughs> how would people feel? I'm sorry, I'm shutting off the machine because somebody more important came in. You know, we don't, we don't, uh, we don't do that. Yeah. This scenario, and and it's like you said, you could do it in self-defense. You can. Yeah, you can always kill the, the threatener. Yes. Threatener. Yes. Yes. Threat, threaten, threatener. Yeah. Um, what if they're saying to you, like, to kill this murderer, or I'll kill you? Oh, uh, okay. So, so that that would depend. And I don't mean I two situations. Yeah. What if they're saying to you, kill this murderer who hasn't killed people for ten years, but when he did ten years ago, he killed thirty people, or someone who just shot. Like ten people, can you shoot the murderer? So it depends. If he has not been convicted by a court or a base, then you cannot. You cannot. A base or like court. You said if he threatens your life, then you can. No, no. If he's threatening, if he's threatening my life now, but I can't kill him for what he did in the past. Meaning, let's say he's tied. Let's say he's tied up right now. He's not threatening me. I could kill a terrorist who is still who still has a gun in his hand. But once the terrorist is tied down and arrested, if I kill him, I am a murderer. But let's say you're in the room and, and I, he's I cannot kill a terrorist once he is disabled. He's neutralized. He just dropped. He just, Hasbashan killed 10 people. He drops the gun. And then someone comes up to you and says, Hasbashan. And someone comes up to you and says, kill him or I'll kill you. Yeah, you cannot. You still cannot. You cannot. So it's only if he's still acting. That's correct. If you remember, this was a famous case in Israel, maybe just uh, two or three years ago. Yeah, that's an issue. In which uh, it was on YouTube even, uh, where uh, a terrorist was uh, he had killed people, and he was uh, tied up and he was arrested, and then a soldier, an Israeli soldier, walked by. The video, at least, said he put a gun to the guy's head, and killed him. Yeah, well, that's and uh, the person was put up for court martial. What, uh, he killed terrorists? He killed a terrorist. He killed a terrorist who was yeah. tied up and sitting there. Yeah. And just now, shot him in the head. Now, what happened was... How many people did I you don't think that's like... No, no, what happened was that the Israeli soldier hurt. claimed... I mean, like, the Israeli hurt. soldier claimed that the guy was reaching for a gun. Which, you know, may, maybe it was... Maybe I, I'm, not, I'm not expressing an opinion. But um, what happened was, though, it is halacha is very, very clear, that the halacha... This is called a rodeh. If you can kill a pursuer, a dangerous person. I kill a dangerous person to prevent him from kill committing danger. I do not kill him to punish him 
for what he already did, that you require uh, at least a, either a baseline or a court. Huh? Can you injure, you know how a lot of times police will shoot you in the ankles to neutralize you? That's like a thing, I think. Well, well the halacha is when you, when, you, when, you, when you defend yourself against a, a rodeif, if you can disable him short of killing, you, you, you do that, yeah. So you can shoot someone in the leg. So if, well, if that's all, but it's only, only when he's still a danger. Yeah. Once he's totally, I mean, if the guy's already arrested and he's tied up, you can't just shoot him in the leg then. So if someone comes to you and that guy just killed 10 people, right? Yeah. Someone comes to you and says, shoot him or I'll shoot you, but he drops his gun. But who knows, he might pick it up. Can you shoot him in the leg? To oh, okay, him? so you're asking me a general question. That, yeah, you, might be able to be, you might even be able to shoot an innocent person in the leg. If, I, if somebody goes over to you and says, shoot this guy in the leg yeah. or I'll kill you. Yeah. The halacha is you might be able to shoot the guy to in the leg. To save your life. Yeah, yeah, it might, might, that might be so even if the guy wouldn't be a, yeah. a terrorist. Yeah. Okay, so the question I'm raising is simply this. If we have all of these halachos that you don't kill one person to save another, then why do I kill the baby to save the mother? Let the mother die and let the baby die. you're arguing it's not a real life. Ah, so what's yeah, it? So the it's answer is, listen, listen, listen. So there are two explanations for this halacha. There is Rashi's opinion, and there is the Rambam's opinion. Rashi says exactly what you just said, that even though you don't, you never say one life is better than another life, but the baby, the unborn baby, the unborn baby, is only a potential it's not life, even a person. not a person yet, and therefore, actual people have preference, have priority over potential. I mean, people. it's not even in a host mother yet. Whatever you that's correct. It. Yeah, well, I'll get to that. Yeah, that, that's correct. Right. So according to Rashi, the concept is actual has priority over potential. That's Rashi's view. Actual meaning actual life. And that is why you can abort the baby in order to save the mother, because the baby is only a potential to become a life. The baby is not an actual life. That is Rashi's explanation. Yeah. Rambam's explanation is very different. Rambam says the reason why you can abort the baby is because if the baby is the reason why the mother's life is in danger, the baby can be killed as a rodef, baby terrorist. Now, this is, a, this is a very important idea because when we think of rodef, we normally think of bad people, people who want to kill. And I can kill that guy first. But the Rambam is teaching me a very important idea. You could be a rodef without any intention at all. You could be very benign. You could just be part of the, right? A baby could be a writer. They tell the story. I'll give you a few other examples. They tell the story of the Holocaust. A bunch of Jews were hiding in a bunker and uh, a mother had a little baby with her. And if the Germans would find out, would find the Jews, they would kill them all. And the baby started crying. And this would give away the whereabouts of the 10 Jews. So the story goes that the mother covered the baby's mouth with a blanket. That's all just, you know, without intending to smother the baby. And the baby was smothered. That was a, tra that was a tragic story. That God forbid the baby, the baby was killed. But I'm going to say something that's even worse. You may hate me for this. And that is, in that case, the baby was smothered accidentally. 
But do you know that according to halacha, it's entirely possible that they could kill that baby. They could strangle that baby. Because if the baby's crying is going to endanger the lives of other people, the baby becomes a rodef. Another, another, no, I understand. What, is it, what does the status of a rodef mean? Like, what does that mean for you? A rodef can be killed, can be killed. But I'm saying, like, is that the only thing that, it, like, is there anything to do with, like, after you die or, like, well, no. I mean, in the case of a baby, the baby committed no sin. I mean, obviously, the terrorist who actually kills people is a great sinner. But Rodef is primarily is primarily the heter I have to kill the person. Let me give you another example, which can happen. Let's say a let's say a, a one-year-old baby gets a hold of a loaded gun. This should absolutely never happen. It's totally irresponsible. But it happens. The baby has a loaded gun. And he's swinging it, swinging it around in a crowded room. And he can go up you know, any minute killing people. Now, obviously, obviously, if you can get the gun from the baby or whatever it is, you do that. You don't, you don't kill the baby right away. You do all sorts of things. But if the only way you could prevent that gun from going off would be to have a sharpshooter kind of shoot the baby, the baby is eroding. Now, there's the point I'm showing you is Rodef doesn't have to be an evil person. Babies can be Rodefs. Crying babies, babies who pick up guns can be Rodefs. Another example would be uh, the Titanic. Let's imagine you have a lifeboat. And the lifeboat can only hold 10 people. And if there's an 11th person on the lifeboat, it will crack and everybody's going to drown. And we have 10 people on the lifeboat. And then you jump on. You jump on the boat. Do you know the halacha is we're allowed to throw you off? We can throw you off the boat because you have become a rodef. Wow. You are a rodef. So the Rambam's chiddush is taking this one step further. Not only can babies be rodef, but even fetuses can be rodefs. If a pregnancy poses a danger to the mother's life, the fetus can be killed because the fetus qualifies as a rodef. So you understand conceptually what's going on. We have two different views, a machlokas, Rashi, and the Rambam, how to explain a Mishnah. Again, what does the Mishnah say? The Mishnah says, Abortion is permitted to save the mother's life. That's a mission, no question. Problem, why am I allowed to kill the baby to save the mother? Don't we have a rule that you don't kill one life to save another life? Answer, Rashi, the fetus is only a potential life. The mother is an actual life. Rambam. Fetus is a rodef. In other words, Rashi and the Rambam are the two explanations that are explaining the Mishnah. Now, of these two explanations, the Shulchan Aruch, which is the final halacha, when it codifies the heter to abort in order to save the mother's life, brings down the Rambam's opinion that it's a din of rodef. Now, why is it important to know which reason is, more, is, is the dominant reason? 
Because let's go back, so now I'm going to swing back to stem cell research. And that is, I had mentioned the possible heter for stem cell research, that it would be mutter, because you're retrieving the stem cells in order to save a life, potentially. So let it be mutter for because of pikuach nefesh. Now, the pikuach nefesh rationale would certainly fit Rashi because the, the embryo is only a potential and the, uh, the, the patient is an actual. So according to Rashi, potential may be sacrificed for actual. So like Rashi, it would work. But if you think about it, like the Rambam, it doesn't work. Because like the Rambam, if the heter of aborting the fetus is because the fetus is endangering the mother's life, that works for a fetus and a mother. But you can't say the embryo in California is a rodaf of the patient in Connecticut who needs stem cell research. In other words, they're not connected. The idea of rodaf doesn't work here because the source of the endangerment is not the embryo. The source of the endangerment is his heart condition or whatever it is. Which means, according to the Rambam, Bikuach Nefesh is not going to be a heter. So I've mentioned two heterim for embryonic stem cell retrieval. Heter number one is the 40 days, and that's controversial. Heter number two, Bikuach Nefesh, which does not work according to Rambam and Shulchan Aruch. It would only work according to Rashi. But the final heter may work according to everybody, and this is exactly what you said at the beginning. You took away my whole shear. Uh, <laughs> but, but you're 100% correct. And that is that some have argued that any prohibition of abortion, even if it's based on being a potential person, is only when the fertilized egg is already in the woman's body. And the reason why that's important, in other words, uterine is already in the uterus. The reason why that's important is because once it's in the woman's body, it is in the environment where in the ordinary course of human development, it will become a child. Now, when something is in a Petri dish, it's not going to develop as a child until it's moved into a uterus. We don't have an artificial womb yet. We don't have an artificial womb that can bring yes. an embryo. Well, yet, theoretically, you, know you, you might have it. But to date, an embryo will not survive more than two weeks, unless you freeze it. But it will not survive without implantation into a uterus. It'll, it'll develop you know, for two weeks, and then it'll, it'll stop. It'll die. So some posts can take the position that any laws against abortion only take effect after it is within the woman's body. But before it is in the woman's body, it is not yet halakhically an abortion. And since the retrieval of embryonic stem cells are from the in vitro fertilized embryo in a Petri dish, this would be heter, meaning even if you don't accept the 40-day heter, even if you're machmer, that within the woman's body it is forbidden even within 40 days, but if it's external to the woman's body, uh, some would say that it's mutter. In fact, by the way, some medical researchers call embryos outside of a woman's body 
they use the term pre-embryo. I don't know if you ever heard that term. It's, it's not a scientific term, technically speaking, because any fertilized egg is called an embryo. But in order to distinguish embryos that are growing within a body from embryos that are growing outside of the body, some medical researchers coined a new lashon called a pre-embryo. But in truth, halacha might accept that distinction, because that's what I'm saying. Halacha might accept the idea that the abortion laws do not take effect in the pre-embryo stage. So that would be a halachic justification for embryonic stem cell treatment. I have more to say about this, but maybe we'll stop here because I, I need to leave, leave a little early. Um, anyway, you, you be well. Uh, next Sunday, next Sunday is Arab Shul, is that right? Yes. So it one? is. Yep. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So there's no, no, I assume there's no class next.